Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone from, or formerly from, the Black Crows, it is drummer Steve Gorman. His new book is, of course, called Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows. A memoir. Uh, and on that, uh, here is uh, our co-host, Alan Niven. Uh, good day, Alan. See, I didn't say bonjour today. We're, we're, doing, we're going different. Totally different. Well, I'll get a bonjour on you and... Uh... <laughs> Ask if you're doing okay, comment ça va? Um, good ça to va. hear you. Yes. Uh, before we get rolling, um, I just just want to revisit something really quickly. Uh, we did a little chat with Sherry Curry of The Runaways, and going into it, I was thinking, gosh, do we have a lot to work with there? I've got to say that woman is a firecracker, and you have got to listen to her talk about her relationship with Kim Fowley. I'll just say that because I think it was really special. Yes, and I will actually be airing that next week. We uh, uh, There was a day last week where I did five interviews in a day, and uh, Steve was number four, and uh, Sherry was right after she was number five on that day, so... I think by the time you hear these two interviews, you you can sense that I was getting somewhat exhausted. But anyway, uh, Steve Gorman, fantastic drummer. We love the Black do Crows. We, we do love the Black Crows. Now, he has written this book. And I'm telling you, as you read the book, and, and you know, within, within the business, there's a code of, there are certain things you can't say. Because there are bands that will run tape. And when people say, oh, who runs tape? The answer is, Actually, who doesn't run tape? That's how prevalent it is. And he describes how Aerosmith was doing it back in the day. And and I read that and I went, oh, my heart hurts. Why are you saying this? That's not, you can't say that. But um, Guns N' Roses toured, of course, with, with Aerosmith. I guess it was hmm, Permanent Vacation Tour, right? 88? Um, uh, yes, it was the summer of 88. Yes, which I saw you at the, or I saw the band, at, maybe I saw you, you might have been there, at uh, Saratoga Springs, New York. They started a, a little mini riot when Axel threw the mic down and walked off stage and people threw whiskey bottles at him and, oh, the fun. Um, what was your experience like with Aerosmith? In the book here, Hard to Handle, Steve describes Joe Perry as a surly prick. And I'm like, no, no, Joe, Joe's not a surly prick. He's a guitar god. Please, please don't do this to me. Um, what was your experience with the Aerosmith camp? Uh, it was interesting. It was complex. Um, the very fact that Guns N' Roses were opening for Aerosmith was a substantial issue within itself because Aerosmith were on the rehab road at that time and it's difficult to conjure up a band that's going to challenge that more than GNR. Um, it was difficult to get the tour for, for, the, for those reasons. Um, fundamentally, uh, I went to Eddie Rosenbrandt and I, you know, we'd been through a series of disasters, um, a riot in Phoenix, um, dropping off the Iron Maiden tour, uh, David Lee Roth deciding he didn't want to offer an opening slot anymore after the riot in Phoenix. He, I'd, I'd lined up the ACDC tour. They pulled out after the riot in Phoenix. 
And I went to Eddie Rosenblatt and I said, Eddie, there's only one tour going out and we have to have it. And you control the band, the label mates. Um, you, and Ge- you and David Geffen need to let their manager know that we want that tour. And uh, <laughs> Eddie and David prevailed, shall we say. And um, so we so we got on 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 that bill. Um, in terms of who they were, I, you know, Brad and Tom were lovely guys. Um, remind me of the singer's name again. <gasps> My um, God, Stephen Tyler, the one and only Stephen Tyler. Stephen Tyler. Don't you yeah, watch American Idol? With... No, I don't. <laughs> um, and I, I, I really liked Stephen. He he had a a kind of wicked humor, humorous energy about him. Um, we did come to a contretemps one afternoon. He hired a tattoo artist to come in and touch up tattoos on various members of the band and bullied me for a full afternoon trying to get me to put the Guns and, Lo- Guns and Roses logo on my chest. He'd pay for it. And fortunately, I prevailed and he didn't tie me to a chair. Um, but he w- he was bound and determined that I was going to have the Guns and Roses logo tattooed on my chest, and I was bound and determined that that was not going to happen. Um, but uh, it was it was a great tour. It, it, my distant memory of it is that, that was maybe the highlight moment of what I understand Guns and Roses to be. Um, it was a total moment of magic, and it was wonderful. And you're talking about tapes and so on and so forth. Yeah, in the 80s, bands got into a position where they lent perhaps a little too much on being reliable and professional. And that's one of the reasons why GNR were a breath of fresh air, because there was definitely no running, no tapes. And there was a certain sense of spontaneity in the air. Would we get through the show? Would we not get through the show? Um, so that spirit of rock and roll came back. When when I don't know how much of the Use Your Illusion tour you're aware of, but when they went out on Use Your Illusion and it went from five guys to 87 people on stage with trumpets and saxophones and singers, and was 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 some of that in a can? I mean, because that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of moving parts to actually play it live. I would imagine maybe the the, the girls backing vocals might have been a trigger. I have no idea what they did on the Illusions tour. What I do know is that they stopped being a band and they became a vaudeville show for a year. Yeah, that that tour that tour was gi- ginormous in terms of scope and people and oh yeah, yeah. Um, real quick, during our chat with Steve Gorman, who, by the way, doesn't uh, doesn't do the the Black Crows anymore. He's got a, his own band going on now, but he also does sports commentary. So. At the beginning of this interview, we talk about Major League Baseball coming back. We talk about the NHL coming back. But during the chat, we also talked about you, Alan. He said... Oh, good Lord. Oh, I know, I know. I, I said that I you were my co-host. And he said, oh, Alan, we gave him our tape and he passed on us. He didn't like the music. <laughs> so so do, you, do you remember having been pitched the Black Crows and thinking, nah, not good enough, or or do we have separate memories going on here? I have a vague recall that um, I was pitched on the Black Crows, and 
trying to pull that vague recall into focus in my mind. I can't remember exactly, but I knew I had good reason not to. And that good reason may just have been simply, I'm overstretched as it is at the moment. I mean, you know, if there were three versions of me, we would have all been overstretched just dealing with GNR, let alone dealing with the other things that we were dealing with and other bands and so on and so forth. Um, but yes, for some reason, I decided that doing the, oh, I remember why I didn't want to do the Black Crows. Damn straight, it comes back to me. I'll tell you exactly why I didn't want to do the Black Crows. I hated the guy who ran their label. I thought he was the biggest motherfucking putz I'd ever met. And, and who would that putz be? What, la- what label was that? Interscope? No. No, it was um, Deaf America or something. Um, oh, uh, 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 Rick Rubin? Come on, help me out here. Was it Rick yes, Rubin? Yes, my God. Yeah. Um, Tom Zutow. Rubin wanted to get close to GNR. And Tom Zutow organized a dinner. Now my recalls are firing on all cylinders. Um, Tom Zutow um, organized a dinner for him, Ruben, and myself at a famous state bar in Manhattan called Gallagher's. And I turned up there, and in the first 15 minutes, Ruben was so offensive and so rude and so stupid I got up and left the table before I even ordered a beer. I couldn't stand the guy. I thought he was an absolute a-hole of the first order. And that is why I didn't want to deal with uh, the Black Crows. So I thought were pretty good. Um, I I did end up seeing the Black Crows in New York after they were signed. And I I, I loved them. I loved that feel. Um, I thought they were a terrific, terrific band. I'm also a big fan of Mark Ford's guitar playing, but there you have it. That was the reason I didn't want to deal with the Black Crows is because I couldn't stand Rick Rubin. I thought he was a, an absolute charlatan and bullshit artist uh, and rude. I, well, and and in the book, he uh, Steve talks about uh, Rick Rubin and Def Jam and says, well, they did this sort of uh, first deal with, for uh, Shake Your Money Maker and then they were in a position to have this second deal and they, they upped the money and they told Rick, well, it's going to go, it's going to be retroactive. You're going to include our first album with this new uh, royalty rate and all this. And then, of course, Def Jam uh, fell apart. And so they were a band on a label that really didn't have anywhere to go. So it ended up being sort of a, a backwards moment for them. But you, you'll read that in the book. It's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Um, one more thing here. I got an email from a fan who said, uh, from our show of House of Lords with James Christian, he said, I just heard your opening segment with Alan Niven. Just great. You need to give this guy, that would be you, his own episode. And, well, listen, today we're, we're going to go a bit longer. Uh, definitely great historical stuff. Alan needs to write his own book. So since we're talking about books, uh, Steve's book, and Steve's book is fantastic, by the way. You, you pick that up, you will not put it down. Um, we have talked about an Alan Niven book in the past. Is there any update in that? Because, I mean, it was something that you've been on for three, four, five years, and... Uh, oh, there's been, there's been a... <laughs> There's such a sense of obligation to do it. You know, everybody looks at you and go, when's the book coming out, dude? And it's not just a sense of obligation. It's a, it's a major chore to me um, because ultimately 
at the end of the story, as far as I'm concerned, um, we fell into archetype and we made archetypical mistakes and it was a failed fellowship in the end, which was very disheartening because one of the major reasons that I love rock and roll and love bands is that sense of fellowship and that sense of us against the world and that sense of beating the odds and that sense of defying all the constrictions that are put upon us. Um, so it feels like a massive chore. And I did get through quite a few pages at one point and totally lost my momentum and desire to deal with it. And I had a bright idea. I thought, I know, I'll send this to someone. They'll read it. They'll come back and say, you can't write this. And then it'll all be over and I'll have my excuse and I can blame that person for not having to do it. So I sent it to Slash, and Slash comes back to me and says, this is great, can't wait for you to finish. And my heart just sank, and I went, oh, my God, no, you were supposed to come back and say no, not finish it. So <laughs> I put it on the shelf myself. Rather than do a book, one day I would much rather do a documentary. I'd rather have it in film. I'd rather film it. I'd rather it be conversation on camera. A book is a chore. It's tiresome. No, thank you. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, I have to say a couple of people over the years have said, you should write a book, Mitch, about it. And I was like, first of all, nobody knows who I am, so nobody cares. And second of all, like you, I was like, no, it's way too labor intensive. So that's why if you want an Alan Niven book, just keep listening to the podcast. Every episode has a new Alan chapter at the beginning. That, that's the way I see it. Anyway, it's, uh, this email went on to say... Well, we're supposed to we're supposed to talk about other people, too. I mean, you know, we talk about me far too much. But let's talk about other people. In fact, let's go and listen to someone else. Well, hold on. I'm, uh, we're, we're there in a minute. Uh, I just wanted to finish the email. It says, Alan, to me, is a man of principle in an industry of jackals. There you go. How is that for, for a wonderful uh, fan reaction to our last episode? Anyway, uh, Judas well, Priest. Well, I've got two reactions to that. One is it's humbling when somebody makes a comment like that and I very much appreciate it. And in the schizophrenia of my mind, I go, damn right. They were jackals and it was a battle all the time. And you spent an awful lot of time dealing with people who cannot spell ethic. And, and, and Steve's book points that out, but I will finish with this before we get over to Mr. Steve Gorman, uh, Judas priest drummer, Scott Travis, uh, sent me a note and said, oh, you interviewed Steve. When is that episode coming up? So so for you, Mr. Travis, here is the episode with Steve Gorman. And I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you share it with your, your, your friends and family and, and folks on social media. So without further ado, here is the one, the only, drummer extraordinaire and sport expert, Steve Gorman. We are speaking with uh, drummer Steve Gorman. His uh, latest book is Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows, a memoir. And as we say in Montreal, uh, bonjour, Steve. How are you? I am, uh, I am, as far as I know, at least, you know, personally speaking, um, I'm certainly not immune to what's going on in the world and I'm concerned and, uh, you know, but that's nothing new for me. But as far as like me sitting at home on a beautiful sunny day, 
in Nashville, Tennessee, answering a phone call, uh, I could be doing a lot worse. Yeah, you, and same here in Montreal. It's it's a nice 30 degrees uh, Celsius, not Fahrenheit, and it's right. gorgeous of and course. sunny, and we are, uh, you know, it's a marathon day. Now, one of my interviews earlier today was uh, David Coverdale, and he said to me, to please convey his love to Steve Gorman that he that you are one of his absolute favorite people in the world and he is still baffled that you wanted to have him on your sports show. <laughs> I was I I love David Coverdale. I, I wish I would love to be able to say I've hung out with him a million times. It's been very few times, but he's such a charming guy and he has such great stories. But I had this when I was doing a nationally syndicated sports talk show, I was dying to have him be uh, on the show as one of my NBA analysts. And I said, look, and of course, David said, well, I know nothing about basketball. I said, no, that's why it's great. I'll send you a script and you can give great detail as we break down playoff games. All you got to do is play it really deadpan as if you're an expert. And he would have been, I mean, you could imagine that voice breaking down the Cleveland Cavaliers offensive woes in the 2015 finals. It would have been brilliant. Oh, it, that would have been absolutely that would have that would have been like a great Saturday Night Live skit. It would have been the greatest thing. Uh, before we get to talking about the book, uh, since you are a sports expert, the NBA and NHL are planning on restarting this summer uh, and then delaying their next seasons to December or even January of 2021. What sort of your take is? <laughs> do you just at some point just go? F it, let's just move on. Let's call this one a wash and let's get back to work in, in October. Or are, are you for sort of lifting the spirit of the nation and getting sports back on TV? Well, I'm, I'm kind of the, the former. I'm like, you know, forget it. But I have a feeling this is going to be a lot like the Olympics for me, which is I spend four years going, who cares? And then they start and I'm sucked in and I'm watching curling and I'm watching bobsled and I'm watching luge and I'm fascinated by it. And, and in the Summer Olympics, suddenly, I like everyone else, I'm a gymnastics expert. You know, um, I, I think it's probably some of that. Once it starts, I'll be happy it's back. But I have, it's interesting, I haven't been missing sports. Um, I, I'm surprised at how much I haven't, but, but that's because there's a lot of books I've been meaning to read. There's a million things, uh, movies and TV series I've missed along the years. So, I, I mean, I've kept my brain occupied. And oddly enough, uh, watching ball games hasn't really been something I've been pining for. But like I said, I think once it starts, I'll probably have a retroactive sense of, gosh, I've really missed this. Well, you see, and, and, and we'll move on from the sports in a second. But for me in Montreal, you know, our, our beloved Montreal Canadians haven't won a Stanley Cup since the early 90s. And the sports channels here, uh, Sportsnet, TSN, they've been replaying cup runs by Canadian teams. <laughs> So I've been mm -hmm. watching my Canadians beat the Flyers and, and and beat the Flames and win Stanley Cups every day of the week. So for me, it's like, yeah, I'm down with this. The Habs winning every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that'll work. <laughs> that'll work. I don't need the real team. They're not that good. But watching Maurice Richard play, I'm down for it. Anyway, let's uh, let's get over to this uh, to the book. Um, hey, let me just say, hey, I'll tell you one thing and I'll cut you off real quick. When the Crows were on our first album in 1990, our first time in Montreal, we opened for Robert Plant at the Forum. And I walked in there and all I could think was, oh my gosh, this is the Montreal Forum. I mean, this is, this is the home of hockey as far as I know. And there was an usher strike going on. So there was nobody there to help people find their seats. 
there were seats on the what would be the ice. And because there was no one there really keeping up with the crowd, they just started stacking the chairs in giant piles. So they had the chairs stacked on top of each other, 10, 12, 15 high, and they were competing to see who could climb the highest tower of chairs and sit in it. I've never seen anything like it before or since. Oh, the, the good old form. And, and here's a fun fact. Growing up here in the 70s, Ken Dryden was my neighbor, the goalie. So there you go. Mm. We had, yeah, uh, right on. Yes, and I had Bill Stoneman down the street, the pitcher for the Expo. So I had a nice uh, neighborhood, I, I must say. But well, uh, when I, we moved to Na- we moved to Nashville in two thousand four, and we had a pre- we had a predator across the street from us. So um, you know, my kids had the same experience as when my son was six. He was hanging out with Scotty Hartnell an awful lot, you know. So he that was pretty exciting at that time. That's great. That, by the way, it, it, it's amazing that that you had that career in sports because when, I've spoken to a lot of different rock stars, and as soon as you bring up anything with maybe the exception of soccer to, to the guys in Iron Maiden, they go, oh, I, don't, I don't do sports. I don't, I don't, I don't know sports. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what was your interest in sports? Where did that come from? Were, were you, how can I put this, uh, respectfully, quote unquote, a failed third baseman and you just sort of kept that love? Or where does your love of sports come from? Well, I grew up in, a, I'm the eighth kid of eight and there's six boys in my family. So I have five older brothers, which meant that um, we had a, a garage full of athletic equipment. And then we had a basement full of albums. So sports and music were the two things that I just was obsessed with for as long as I can remember. I don't, I have no memories of not loving the Baltimore Orioles or the Beatles. You know, it was just like, those were things that it all was the same to me. I was as a kid growing up in Maryland, it was the Orioles and the Colts. And at that time, the Baltimore bullets. Um, And then the Beatles and the stones and, the doors and uh you know that it's just listening to records while shooting hoops that's how i grew up and so the two things were always uh connected and then i when i was 10 we moved to kentucky and you know kentucky has a a, there is a state religion there it's called basketball and um so uh, my the three younger brothers of the family all moved there and we were obsessed with basketball and like i said my idea of a great night was to you know, back the car away in the driveway. So I had the hoop, to, you know, I could put a light, I could put the headlights of the car on the hoop and I could listen to the radio while I played basketball with my friends. And, you know, when you're a kid and you're playing little league sports, if you're a big music fan in a small town, you don't really see a path to becoming a musician and joining a band because you turn on the TV and you see a band and you think, well, how do you get from here to there? But you have little league baseball, you have basketball, you have soccer, you have all sports and everyone's playing them. And I think that there's a lot of connective tissue, actually. I think the kid who thinks at 13, like, I'm going to be the quarterback. I think there's a lot of that same kid who says, I'm going to be the singer in a band. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, maybe it's, maybe that's just me trying to, you know, make an analogy that's not there. But I just, I noticed when the Crows took off and I met a lot of professional athletes, there were an awful lot of guys uh, that were really, really, really big music fans. And I used to say, like, everybody I meet that plays sports wants to be in a band. And I just wanted to be a pro athlete my whole life. And every band has at least one sports fan in it. And there is a lot of, uh, you know, I, I know a million musicians that will talk your ear off about their Little League careers. So I think I think for a lot of people, it's just one of the things you grow up doing. You really do. And by the way, I, I, I appreciate the fact that your parents took the TV show Eight is Enough, literally. <laughs> Which, right? 
That was great. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, well, the, you know, my folks are from Detroit, so I'm I, I'm a I'm a Mich- I'm from a Michigan family, but I grew up in Maryland and Kentucky. So, uh, yeah, Midwestern Catholic family. You know, we knew a lot of families where eight was just on the way to ten or twelve. You know, we weren't we didn't think that we had an overly large family. We knew plenty with more. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, let's get let's get to the book here for a second because I have. A, a connection to the Black Crows in the sense that you you come through Saratoga Springs, New York in June of, I guess it was 1990 with, with Aerosmith on the pump tour. Yep. yep. And I, I, I have no idea who you are. I'm in Canada. You know, much music is very much CanCon, Canadian content. So they're playing Honeymoon Suite and Platinum Blonde and, and new bands like the Black Crows sometimes don't get fit on the channel. So I show up and I see this band and it was immediate. I just went, man. And the next day I go out and I buy Shake Your Moneymaker. And then two days later, June 29th, I see you in Toronto with Metallica, Warrant. Uh, who else was on that? Yeah. Uh, Aerosmith. Aerosmith. Yeah. That, what a night that was. But I've never had an immediate connection with an opening band. To me, the opening band previously was always just sort of a waste of time. It's like, eh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's to get people right. in from the parking lot. But I saw this band and the energy live was just out outstanding now in the book you talk about how uh, at some point your manager says to you listen we're gonna get we're gonna get some videotape we're gonna watch and we're gonna learn how to be an opening band and of course by the time you get to june 1990 man you had learned it um talk to me about finding your place in that space and and how important was the live show to what you did well you know when you saw us that that was the first tour where we had to learn what we were doing and apply those lessons you know we had while we'd ever done like any band is just playing little clubs and so you know when we got the aerosmith dates in the summer of 90 uh our first night on that tour to step onto an arena stage for the first time i mean it was we might as well have been playing into the grand canyon we'd just never seen a room that big while playing music and it is a, it is night and day to go from a club to an arena. And, you know, for me, it's not that big. I'm sitting behind a drum kit, no matter how big the room is, you know what I mean? But, but for the rest of the guys up front and especially our singer, Chris, it's a lot to learn. And, and, you know, you're opening for Aerosmith. They've got arguably one of the five greatest frontmen of all time in their band. And, you know, the pressure was really on Chris to step up, and like you said, when you're going to step in front of 10,000 people that are looking at the opening band as just this thing they have to endure until the headliner, you, you know, you want to get their attention. You don't want to prove them right. Um, and it is a chance to play for a whole lot of people. The thinking is, if, if we're in front of 10,000 people and 10% of them like us, that's still, a, that's, that's still more people than are going to come and see us in a club. You know what I mean? Like, that's 1,000 people instead of 200 people. So you know, it just seemed to us like we got to take our shot. It was almost like, you know, it's like the, it's like your Rocky Balboa, you know, like I, there's no way I should even be in the ring with Apollo Creed, but what if I get lucky and land a punch? And I, and I guess you saw a night when we landed a few punches and, uh, and, and that's what the whole point of a tour like that is. Oh, listen, you really did. Because for me back in the day to go buy records, I live in, in, in a small village. So it's a 45 minute drive to go buy an album. And I had to do the Toronto. So I have to go from Albany to Montreal, Montreal to my place, my place to turn. The fact that I got in the car the next day and went and bought Shake Your Money Maker just shows the impact that it had. Yeah. Because it, right it, it, it was effort. Um, but, yeah, that's great. But let me talk about this because 
I, and I'm going to make this personal, but I, I was going through the 80s with the Def Leppards and the Bon Jovis and yes, Junkyard and all that. And I was told, hey, you're going to have to check out this Black Crows band. But when you listen to it, you go, well, this, this, this is not a hair metal thing. And you talk about it in your book. You're, you were sort of lumped into the hair metal bands. You were like Cinderella Part 2 or whatever. But you never were that. So what was sort of the plan for the band? How, how were you marketed? And, and were you always comfortable with the way they that, that, they, that TV and, and stations were marketing you? Well, we were... You know, it's it's interesting. Well, there was, we we didn't have a plan. You know, we were a band who, eight weeks before our first album was released, still didn't have an agent or a manager. You know, we we were we made an album in the summer of 1989 that that we loved and that we thought would never in a million years find its way to rock radio and especially not MTV because, you know, like just like you, you you look at late 80s rock. We weren't that, and we didn't like that. Like we liked we would listen to guns and roses and we, we took a lot from not their sound. We never wanted to be as hard as they were, uh, but just their attitude, just like, you know, you could tell guns and roses, they liked metal, but they also liked punk. Like they were sort of, they were a little older than us, but you know, there's that thing of when you're a kid from the seventies and then you grow up and start playing music in the eighties, you've got on one hand Led Zeppelin records. And on the other hand, you got replacements records or, or sex pistols records, you know, like, you know, like our heroes uh, were, were the were, were the the big the the heritage bands, the classic bands. But then we related to the bands that came along and said, "Those guys are dinosaurs. Let's shake it all up." You know, like I mean, you know, like I always said, the Beatles made me love music, but REM made me play music. And so we had a very much a mindset and a, and, a, and an idea of what a band is from '80s independent bands our sound and the way we played and the kind of style that suited what we did best was more for lack of a better term, seventies, you know, was more rock and roll. Um, so going into all that to say, so we never saw ourselves fitting in with the sunset set, the sunset strip scene or anything that was really popular in 1989. when We made that record flash forward a year later, the record comes out. We're opening for Aerosmith. A band that, you know, like when, I mean, you know, we loved Aerosmith as kids. We all liked 70s Aerosmith. And in 1990, they were on the second album of their incredible comeback. So, no, I mean, at the time, nobody would have thought they'd still be Aerosmith in 2020. You know, it seemed like, oh, they're getting one last lap on the track. That's cool for them. I think that's how the whole world looked at Aerosmith right then. But, you know, we, we went from taking cues from bands that had, for the most part, never even gotten to theaters and certainly rarely got past theaters to then going out and touring with arena all of a sudden we're opening for Aerosmith and ZZ top and Robert plant. And so we had this weird sort of lane all to ourselves. Like in our minds, we were the replacements. The world saw us as the uh, heir apparent to a lot of the classic rock bands and somewhere in the middle, I guess is where we found ourselves as far as the marketing goes. Yeah. I'd open up a magazine and there'd be warrant and slaughter and poison and the black crows. And I'd go, this doesn't make any sense, but even I could tell, yeah, but we don't look right next to the replacements either or Husker do or, or, you know, or even REM who at that point were still not quite the arena band. So we always sort of occupied uh, our own lane. And then within two years of our first album came out, grunge took over the world. And even then again, we were left kind of to our own. We had our own little corner of the room always. Well, that's the one thing I noticed is that you really did have this own lane. And by the way, uh, my co-host on the show is uh, Guns N' Roses manager, Alan Niven, who we record after. But if I can get him on the phone for you now if you want to talk to him. Um, but 
the the other thing here that I find interesting is for me, and and I'm going to make this interview very we, personal. Hey, you know, I, sorry, I got, I got to cut you off. We met Alan Niven, and when we were looking for management, he came to Atlanta with Great White, and we went down and met him, and uh, he was not interested. He, along with just about every other manager in the world that got Shake Your Moneymaker, was like, nah, I'm good. I don't hear it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, oh sh- should we get him on the line and ask him? Would you would you allow uh, that? I, I, no, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm not. I, I don't need that. You can okay. talk to him about it. I'm, I'll, I'm not I'll, interested. In, right. I, I, not not good or bad. I couldn't care less. I all right, I'll, I'll, I'll ask him later. But uh, let me get back right. to the to the book here. You are incredibly honest in this book, and and there are some some things that I read that I go, oh wow, you're not supposed to say that out loud. Uh, one of them mm-hmm. is, of course, with this Aerosmith tour, and you say, man, they're using triggered vocals, and it was more of a of a lip sync performance. And I read that and I go, oh, you're not that. That's a secret. You're not supposed to you're not supposed to say that. Um, but but talk to me a little bit about that. W- was that a very uh, rapid learning experience? Because here you are, you're playing the bars, you're out with Junkyard, you're doing it real. It's live. You're jamming. You're you know, you're doing the whole thing. And then you get to the big arena and you go, oh, huh. OK. Yeah. Was that disappointing? Oh, a, yeah, it was. We had very. And, and, but I, I don't blame Aerosmith for for anything they do. That's their business. We were, we very much had stars in our eyes. You know, we were very, uh, hopeful, you know, you know, we, we, we really saw rock and roll as magic, you know, like we were trying to get to a place where we could, we, we wanted to be one of those bands that made people feel the way we felt when we listened to Led Zeppelin bootlegs or little feet bootlegs. You know, we wanted to be a great live band or the stones in 72, you know, we wanted to be one of those bands. Humble Pie, Rockin' the Fillmore, one of those bands. And to us, Aerosmith was one of those bands. And by the way, Aerosmith was great when we were out with them. And they weren't, it wasn't all canned vocals, but things like the end of Love in an Elevator were. And we just had, like you said, we went right from opening for bands like Junkyard, where it's just, it's, it's, it's virtually, uh, uh, it's closer to punk rock than anything else. And then to see something like Aerosmith, which is this super pro you know, they are delivering every night, night in and night out. And they were very much, like I said, part of this, you know, they were making what is still the greatest comeback in rock history, I think, from how far they'd fallen. And they just weren't messing around. And they were also sober and were, and it's a their, I'm not talking out of school. I love the guys in Aerosmith. But at that time, as they would all tell you now, they were kind of brainwashed by their manager at the time. And they had Tim Collins. police with them. Every, yeah, they had people with them everywhere they went. They were really... They were in a bit of a bubble and that wasn't cool to us. You know, we were like, we can't even hang out with these guys and it feel normal. Um, the, the exact opposite we found a couple months later when we went out with Robert Plant and he was, he was entirely hospitable and happy and fun and spontaneous. Like Robert was, you know, Robert was, was, couldn't have been, couldn't have been more gracious and, and supportive. And we didn't feel that from Aerosmith. Now we also were, a little disillusioned. And so the support Aerosmith did offer us, we weren't interested in. And, and most of that I chalk up to us being really snotty kids at the time. I mean, we got along great with those guys down the road. And to this day, you know, I think nothing but good things about them, but it was, it was eye opening to us uh, to, to say the least in 1990. I can imagine. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, now we've mentioned uh, Robert Plant a couple of times and you also did the stuff with, with Jimmy Page, 
What do you take out of working with these veteran acts, being on a stage with Aerosmith, opening that Toronto show with Metallica? What is that, you know, you, as you're learning your craft, what do these guys bring where you just go, okay, now I see what's going on here and I can figure it out. Uh, what are some of the best plant stories you have from that tour? Uh, well, we, we are, every, uh, there's a million plant stories. It was, um, I think what I got from him, uh, what, I, what I personally took away from Robert, which again, like as the drummer, there's not a lot I'm going to learn from Robert Plant performance wise that I can really apply. Uh, not too much, but he was at that age, time, I think in his, he was probably 41 or 42. Now, of course to us, we thought that was old, you know, cause we're all in our early twenties. And we're all like, wow, he's still amazing. And he's 42. You know, it's so silly how we thought of that. But what I, what I took away from him was just uh, personally, he was, it was obvious he was having a good time. He was still very curious. He still wanted to do new things. He's sort of relentlessly, restlessly curious, you know, as a human being. And that was apparent, you know, Robert was the kind of guy on that tour. He would, he would rent a car and drive himself from one city to the next, uh, you know, uh, regularly. And, you know, and so, so that he could not get on the interstate, he would take state roads and he just loved to stop at flea markets and general stores and pawn shops. And he just living and experiencing and seeing stuff. And he talked a lot about those kind of things. Like he would come into the venue and he would be talking about this cool you know, oh, I, I bought this belt today from this guy behind a gas station. <laughs> You're like, wait, what? You know, and he just had such a, a real zeal for life and just living and not getting stuck in a rock star bubble. And uh, that was that that made a big impact on me. That dented my brain in all the right ways. And he's still very much that way. I oh. mean, uh, you know, he he's I think everything he's done, whether you like his music or not, I, uh, you know, I, nobody can ever say Robert is not doing it the way he wants to do it. And that's, that's ultimately the hardest thing to maintain the whole longer you go in this kind of a world. Oh, absolutely. And it's frustrated a lot of fans that he doesn't do the, the Zeppelin reunion, but he's, he's happy doing, you know, whether it's with yeah. Alison Krauss or whatever, um, trigger hippie, the, uh, the, the, the current band. Talk to me about uh, still being creative and still getting out there and forming a new band. And in terms of, uh, how difficult is it to to get it to the masses, and is it more of a of a hobby band, or is this something where you want to build it? And how difficult is it to build a new brand? No, we were we definitely want to build it, and we were we were doing quite nicely at that. I mean, for you know, we put a record out in October, and we got a we got a bunch of shows uh, through March seventh, and then like the rest of the world, we had to pull the plug on everything. Um, no, I would like to build it as far as it could possibly go. Uh, it's, it's, but, but to answer your question, it's, it's very difficult. It's darn near impossible, you know? Um, but that's okay because this is a labor of love. I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have put a new band together or joined a new band that's, that's mission statement was to go have great success because I don't have any idea how you do that anymore other than just grind it out on the road forever. And I've done enough of that. And, and I would only want to grind it out forever if I was loving what I was doing with the people I was doing it with. So let's turn that formula around. The Trigger Hippie started by my, my best friend, the bassist Nick Govrick and I were like brothers. He's a great songwriter. 
uh, we've been playing together for 15 years and we just put a band together around us. We found people that uh, we felt brought out the best in us that we could add to what they do. You know, it's a, it's a, to me, a real band is all about chemistry. Um, the best band in the world are not the four or five best musicians in town. It's the best band that when they get together, the Venn diagram in the middle, there's just something there that's unique that isn't found anywhere else. I mean, yeah, the Beatles had the best songs ever and three of them could sing great. And Ringo's a spectacular drummer, et cetera, et cetera. But what they did together, there was an extra element to that. It went way beyond songs and performance. Any great band, Led Zeppelin. I mean, any band that you name, if they're a great band, there's an element of their chemistry that is way greater than just the sum of the parts. And so to me, Trigger Hippie is that. Now, whether it's going to ever get to a place where we're playing bigger rooms than clubs, I have no idea. I would love that and we'll work hard for it, but that's not what got us started. This was, you know, uh, this really came from, we love playing together. We love putting music together. Uh, here's some people that we love doing that with. We're all of a like mind about how we feel when we play together. Let's see what happens now. So, you know, it's, it's not unlike the way a lot of bands in high school start, you know, you're like, Hey, you're my friend. Let's start a band together. That's kind of what this is. And of course, uh, full circle and then some, uh, which I've had a chance to check out. It's just a fun album. I, I, I love. I really love the vibe to it there, because there really is a vibe to it. There's. It's just. I don't know. It sounds like people just ha- sort of hanging out and having some fun. Um, real quick, back to the book for a second. We we talk about ZZ Top and of course corporate uh, corporate sponsorship. Um. What I found interesting is we all over these years thought, oh, my God, they're they're against light beer. They're against corporate sponsorship. They're, you know, they're. And then it turns out that it was somewhat of a PR stunt. Uh, explain that PR stunt to me. And, and how efficient was it in getting the band to the next level? Well, it started as a very well, you know, it's 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 like. You know, it's a it, it's a total credit to our manager, Pete Angelus, who saw a situation that nobody saw coming a million miles away. He just saw, you know, there's always a thing like, um, you know, there's always an opportunity if you just spin a situation in every degree to look at it. This whole thing started from a miscommunication and a misunderstanding. And then there was an accusation made that wasn't true. But the response to that accusation wasn't, I don't know what you're talking about. It was, oh, yeah, well, screw you. And next thing you know, we find ourselves in the middle of this controversy. I mean, I, I explain all this in the book in great detail, but you know, Chris, our singer, Chris Robinson, did he did not like the idea of tours having sponsors, corporate sponsors. Now, for whatever reason, I mean, he can tell you better than I what his thinking was when we went on to that tour in 1991. However, he gave an interview where he said he didn't drink light beer. That's a general statement. Well, the sponsor of the tour was Miller Lite, and somebody from the Miller Lite world thought he was referring to their beer specifically. And then he was told, hey, don't badmouth the sponsor. Well, going up to the singer of a rock band and saying, don't do this is like basically saying, please do this. You know what I mean? Like if he's worth his salt, he's going to he's going to get up in arrears and tell you to go piss off. And that's what Chris did. He started speaking to the audience every night about corporate free rock and roll. Nobody tells us what to play. This is our music for you. No middleman. And audiences ate that stuff up. Um, And that led to uh, the, the ZZ Top camp threatening to fire us from the tour. That, that's that's the end of the story, except for Pete Angelus, our manager, said, hey, this is a great angle. You know, like this this could really work because because you see something organic with his 
you know, the audience responding to things Chris would say. And then people from Miller Lite and ZZ Top are telling us not to do that. And Pete said, you know, we could maybe spin this. If they really did fire us, that would be a huge story. So let's think about when it would be good to get fired. I mean, that's the law. That's the short version of a long story. It's like if something's going to happen anyway, if we're coming to a head with, a, with somebody, if this is not going to clear up and we're going to have a contentious relationship, let's see if we can get something from it on the back end. And that's ultimately what it was. We sort of engineered the timing around what seemed to be our inevitability, our inevitable firing, if you will. And so it, it worked out really well. It's still, you know, it's still the band never got more press than they did when that happened. You know, we went from a feature in Rolling Stone to the cover of Rolling Stone and you know, we were on Rockline that very night talking about it. Suddenly we're on Saturday Night Live. It, it really, the album jumped, I think, from 2 million copies to 4 million copies in the month following that. It was it was a pretty crazy time. Yeah, and I remember it very specifically. I, I actually remember thinking, oh, they can't be that silly. You, you don't want to hurt the poor corporate sponsors. Because everything back then was sponsored by Pepsi or by Miller Lite or Budweiser this. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, oh, what are they doing? Um, I do want to ask you about uh, the band, uh, the Black Crows, because as we've gone through this interview, you keep referring to Chris and the guys as my singer. My, Even though you're no longer in the band, there's obviously still a great affinity for the band and for the music. I mean, I know you look at the book and you, you listen to some of the interviews and it's like, oh, he's against the Crows and he doesn't want to be part of the reunion. But as I hear you talking, I, I just hear sort of a lot of love for what you've done. Is Is that the right perception? I mean... Obviously, well, business. If, yeah. if I'm telling the story about 1991, I'm going to put myself. I'm going to say my singer. I'm, you know, that, that's just natural. That's just in telling a story. That was the case at the time. But yeah, of course, I I, I love the Black Crows. I mean, I, I it's it's it was 27 years of my life, and when we were good, we were great, and when we were not our best, we were still pretty good. And I'm very proud of so much of the music we recorded. I'm so proud of most of the shows we played uh, the inner workings of the band were always a great challenge. And I have not considered myself a part of that band. I haven't thought of the band as being a part of my life now for six years and, and it, and it won't ever be again. And that's how it should be. I'm thrilled to be where I am with who I am doing everything I'm doing now. So, you know, from, from the spring of 2014, it's never been something that I ever thought would be a part of my life again. And I'm perfectly happy with that and, and very content with it. I, I don't, gotcha. I don't like how it ended. I don't like a lot of things about how it went as it went, but you know, all said and done, if you went back to me in 1987 and said, this is what's going to happen. Are you still signing up? Of course I'm signing up. It was great. All right. So, and I, and I do want to ask you a couple more questions before we wrap up. Um, when I saw you with, with, with Aerosmith and then, uh, the band played a 45-minute set or whatever, and it was quick and it was tight, and the songs went from one to the other. It was, you know, four or five minutes each, and off we go. And then when I saw you later on in the career, the song started becoming seven minutes, eight minutes, it was long jams in between. Was that something that you as a musician were comfortable with, or did the brothers just say, hey, this is what it's going to be? Or was was that a natural occurrence for you, and were you happy it with was- it? Yeah, I, I was comfortable doing it, you know, musically. Um, I, I think that we were really, really good at that, except for when we weren't. You know what I mean? We got very self-indulgent and way too self-indulgent at times. I think it. I think we went into that with the best intentions. You know, Led Zeppelin was a band that you could say the same thing about. And in 1992, 93, 94, 
And 95, I guess, up until 95, we were taking a lot of cues from how they jammed live. It always stayed within a structure. We would jam and add sections to songs and mix things up, but but you kind of we never got lost in it. By 96, 97, things definitely went a little too far. It's for my personal taste. But that was something Chris loved. It wasn't it wasn't the brothers. They were at each other's necks. You know, Rich was very opposed to the to the level of of how far Chris wanted to take it. So it was a constant source of friction within the band. Um, I was all for musical exploration. Uh, I I think that we. You know, and like I said, like anything, like we did it to a certain point where it was great, and then we never knew when enough was enough and took it way too far. If you saw the band in 96 or 97, you either loved it or you hated it. I mean, we went way far down that road and alienated so many of our earliest fans. Um, and I don't know that we ever, I don't, you know, it would have been fine if we'd come out the other end and, and with, with, with something that made sense, but we really didn't, I don't think. I think we made a lot of decisions and the band sort of jerked back and forth down the road, left, right, left, right, uh, way more than I would have ever wanted it to have done. You know, I thought I did look at I look at all bands like a like a like a like a team, like a basketball team, you know, like, OK, you rebound, you shoot, you pass, you do this. You, everybody's got strengths. Everybody work to their strengths and find a cohesive place where we all connect and then we'll be golden. And the Black Crows, when we did that, we were unstoppable. It, but we just we just had a really hard time agreeing on what our strengths were. And so, you know, the band was always the band had a fatal flaw before we'd ever played one show, um, a lack of self-awareness on those kind of things. And it just it just as the career got longer and longer, a problem like that, an issue like, well, what kind of band do we actually want to be and what are our values as individuals? The kind of stuff you never talk about when you're 21 by the time you're in your forties, those things are really important. And, uh, and our lack of common ground is what ultimately ran the band off into the ditch. Yeah, I can see that. And, and I'm just trying to think what tour it was. Uh, there was a tour where you were doing the, the live concert CDs that you could buy at the merch booth. 2008, maybe something like that. 2000, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. There was a, there was a few years there like that. Yeah. But, but I just remember seeing you at the metropolis in Montreal and every song was like 14 minutes. And I was like, what are they doing? This is not what I signed up for. So, but but yeah. but, but that early stuff yeah. was was so perfect. Anyway, uh, not mm -hmm. not. I don't mean to insult. Sorry about that. Um, That's not your opinion is right. You know what I mean? That's the thing. Like people say, what's the best Black Crows record? I go, hell, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, everybody's opinion on music is the right opinion. You you like stuff. Uh, that I don't like. That doesn't mean either one of us is wrong. I, I, and I, I love the Black Rose music, but I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not precious about anyone else's thoughts on it on any level. Oh, and by the way, I love the music too. And and um, you're absolutely right. Uh, I always try to promote bands uh, positively and stuff. And just because, for example, you know, I don't like Bjork doesn't mean you shouldn't like Bjork. That's ridiculous when fans have those kind of arguments. Um, real quick, yeah. uh, Canadian Eddie. Uh, passed away in 2016. Uh, he was essential to the band. Talk to me a little bit about Eddie and the decision to bring him in because here you are, this this sort of down and dirty rock and roll band, and you go, hey, we need a keyboardist. Um, what was that? Where did that decision come from where you said, okay, as a rock band, we need to have keys, but then you brought in not only the right guy, you brought in there's this massive uh, talent with you. 
Well, it's real simple. We did a few shows in Atlanta at the end of 1990 with Chuck Lavelle, who of course plays with the Stones now, but played with the Allman Brothers and Clapton and all kinds of people. Chuck played the keys on Shake Your Moneymaker. And after the record had been out for a little under a year, we did three shows in our hometown and we were going to shoot a video for Stucks Angels there. It was the end of the year, 1990. So it was kind of like a big three nights in the hometown, the Conquering Heroes return. And let's have Chuck come in and sit in and play the gigs with us. And so, you know, because up at that point, we were a five-piece band touring with no keys. So Chuck shows up, does the first gig, and right away we knew, like, man, this we need this. We need a keyboard player on tour. And so after the first show, Chris said to him, he said, Chuck, do you know somebody? Can you recommend a keyboard player? Because uh, obviously, you know, we're not hiring him away from the Rolling Stones at that point. And Chuck said, there's a guy uh, who lives in Detroit. I think he's Canadian, but I met him in Chicago. <laughs> you know, right away, it's already a good story. He goes, but he's been playing with a bunch of blues guys like James Cotton and Albert Collins. Uh, his name's Ed Harsh. He's incredible. And we just said, great, can you give us his number? Ed was on a flight to Atlanta two days later, and we met him. Uh, he played some stuff with Soundcheck. Chuck did the show that night. The next day we got in a room with Ed and did a rehearsal. We hired him on the spot. I mean, Chuck Ravel says, this is the guy. He comes down and there was no red flags. We're like, cool dude. Been on a row with some of our blues heroes. And Chuck Ravel says he's great. Good enough for us. And, uh, and Ed was uh, an integral part of the Black Crow sound from the second he showed up. Um, you know, the essence of what made that band the best it ever was uh, had a lot to do with Eddie Harsh. He really did. And of course, uh, that story and some of the other stories we talked about is in Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows, a memoir. And I will finish on this. I do send off some of this audio to a Led Zeppelin show. Um, Jimmy Page, Live at the Greek, and the, and those shows. Uh, any great stories about working with Jimmy and, and that that moment in time? Uh, they're all great. I, I loved every minute uh, that I was ever in a room with Jimmy Page. He... Uh... The most important thing I, I, I mentioned plant, you know, with that zest for life and always being curious. The thing I got from Jimmy that changed the way I play and the way I approach playing ever since was he was still always trying to find the spirit at all times. You know, like in rehearsal, we'd have we'd run through a song and you could see him getting excited. And he was not he didn't care if the notes were right. He didn't care if the, the if, if I came out of the fill right on the one it was the overall spirit of the thing. He was looking for the vibe. And when the band was clicking and we were all listening to each other, he could always tell, and he would just get this look on his face and it was infectious and it was contagious. And he was always like, you know, like before every show, he was like a kid on Christmas. I mean, he would be pacing the halls like, Oh, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. He almost give us a pep talk every night. And when you see a guy like Jimmy Page acting that way, um, in the year 2000, after he's been at it for 35 years, we couldn't help but get caught up in his wake. And I, I've carried that with me ever since. It was it was an exhilarating time, uh, for sure. And for me personally, the most fun time I ever had playing music. Oh, I can imagine. And uh, on that, I'll, I will say, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. And uh, I will finish with this personal thought is, seeing the Black Crows open for Aerosmith that one day, you made me realize that I had to show up early for every gig just in case there was the next Black yeah. Crows there. Oh, right on. 
Well, uh, I've been, been uh, I'm sure all of the opening bands you endured, they, they, they owe us a debt of thanks somewhere. But then again, they do. I, see, I was the same way. I saw, I saw a band called the English beat open for the police on my 17th birthday and halfway through the police set, I was like, I don't need to see any more of this. I want that first band to come back. English beat. There's a, there's a band from the, from the past. Great band, by the way. Uh, great memories. Yeah, I and, them. Oh yeah. Uh, boy, right up there with uh, madness and all those bands from that, that, genre anyway great stuff uh thank you steve great pleasure thank you for for agreeing to do this today yeah right on man happy to talk to you cheers have a good one want to take a shower with mitch hey siri play rock talk with mitch lafon i couldn't find rock talk with mitch lafon in your music oh she never works 